Hey everyone, welcome back to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. Uh, we're still here with Ben Norton. And uh, for this uh, segment here, the, it'll be probably uh, a lot different from uh, another one that I encourage you to go listen to, uh, where we dig into um, a lot of the like, sectarian issues among the left, and also uh, Ben Norton and Rania talk about being attacked uh, by people. And, and, and so for this, we want to talk about some news developments from the past week, uh, and Ben's done a lot of work. Uh, journalism on, on Yemen, um, as well as following several other issues uh, with, with Middle Eastern politics. And so uh, to start, I know that you were following the visit um, of, the, of the Saudi ruler to the uh, United Kingdom and, and everything that was happening around that. Uh, so why don't you um, talk about what, what was um, significant or, or what you were trying to pay us, get people to pay attention to with that over the past week? No, this is incredibly important. First of all, I just wanted to apologize on behalf of both me and Rania for, for <laughs> not letting you speak for an hour. But uh, but now I think uh, we're, we're, I, I want to, you know, give you much more space. But, you know, in Syria, Rania and I could talk for like five hours. Um, yeah. Well, but, PTSD, Syria PTSD. <laughs> but I don't, I don't actually think of it um, as a slight. I don't have much to add. I'm not the one that's out there getting attacked every day. Uh, although um, Nira Tandon has... Uh, used it for against me, but I just I kind of thought it was funny and hilarious and laughed and just let it go. Well, good. Hopefully, you found it entertaining. <laughs> um, as for as for this issue, I mean, first of all, just to emphasize this point before talking about it, because it's not stressed enough in mainstream media, and, and this is also good in relation to Syria. Yemen is the largest humanitarian catastrophe in the world, largest. The UN has repeatedly said that for a year now. They have said it again and again that. There are a lot of horrible humanitarian catastrophes. I'm not downplaying Syria or elsewhere. These are horrific you know, crises. But Yemen is the worst. It's the largest. You have 8 million people on the verge of starvation. You have 80% uh, of the population in need of some kind of assistance, whether it be food, uh, medicine, water, um, you know, fuel. And, of course, the United States has played the key role, along with the United Kingdom, in helping Saudi Arabia turn Yemen into a barren wasteland, destroy this country, which was already the poorest in the region, but now has completely just ravaged this country. And of course, what we've seen is this is a bipartisan war. And it's this the war in Yemen began in March 2015 under Barack Obama here in the U.S. And uh, it has actually since intensified. Not, not only has it continued, it's intensified. And we see this with Mohammed bin Salman, who is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he is effectively the de facto ruler at the moment. Um, his father, the king, King Salman, is technically the, the head of state, um, but everyone knows it's an open secret that King Salman has very bad dementia and is in very poor health. And in fact, I even heard um, from a very good source uh, that there are rumors going on inside the Saudi royal family that uh, King Salman may abdicate after this Ramadan. Uh, and officially hand over power to his son, uh, Crown Prince Mohammed. Um, but at this point, Crown Prince Mohammed is already calling all the shots. He has been overseeing the war in Yemen. It's it's his child, if you will, uh, his very bloody, uh, murderous child. And, uh, and the fact that he was invited to meet with the head of state in the United Kingdom, it, it demonstrates just how powerful he is. Of course, in 2017, 
Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, purged many of his opponents within the Saudi royal family, um, imprisoned and exiled, and in, in some cases, maybe even killed. Uh, there were some very suspicious deaths that happened, um, you know, crashes and, and, and such um, within the span of a few weeks last year in 2017. And he solidified his, his iron grip on power. Of course, we don't hear, not only do we not hear think pieces, um, you know, we, talk, we hear constant stories about how Assad does this, Assad does that. And yeah, like Assad does a lot of horrible things, of course. Of course, he's, he leads an authoritarian state, of course. Um, but we, we never hear uh, op-eds talking about the horrific crimes being overseen by the absolute monarch, by the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who is torturing and imprisoning his opponents, executing peaceful dissidents, um, and of course, enjoys the support of the US and the UK. So not only do we not hear criticism, in fact, we hear the opposite. We are here, Friedman in the New York Times, whitewashing uh, Mohammed bin Salman, talking about how he's a great reformer who's going to save Saudi Arabia and the whole world and Ignatius and all these people, all these pundits and Western government officials. So anyway, that, that's like a, a pretty um, detailed preface to what I'm about to say, getting us to what happened uh, this month in March. On March 7th, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, was invited to Buckingham Palace. He dined with Queen Elizabeth, there's photos of him, and then he later met with Prime Minister Theresa May and the leaders of her conservative government, her Tory government. Um, there's a photo of him posing, Mohammed bin Salman posing, smiling with Theresa May outside of 10 Downing Street. Um, so we see a very concerted campaign by, the, the, by Britain, by the British government, to lend its legitimacy to the authoritarian, supposedly reformist Saudi crown prince as he wages a genocidal war. And, 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 and I use the word genocidal lightly because it's abused a lot. But the war in Yemen is, is, you know, people will say the war in Syria is genocidal, blah, blah, blah. No, the goal of Saudi Arabia is very clearly to kill as many Yemenis as possible. That has been that has obviously been their intention. The United Nations has made it clear that they're using starvation as a tactic. They have blockaded the country. This you know, genocide is thrown around a lot in political discussions and debates. But what Mohammed bin Salman is overseeing with the help of the U.S. and the U.K. has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, of course, they don't get mentioned much because these are people who have died from preventable causes, mostly starvation, malnutrition, preventable diseases. But it has unleashed the largest cholera outbreak in recorded history and utterly decimated Yemen. I mean, this country is going to take decades to get back together again. And and the fact that the UK is welcoming him, so he's dining in you know Buckingham Palace and meeting with Theresa May, is should be such a scandal and such an outrage. And fortunately, there were large protests. But uh, you know the fact that this even happened should should be at the top of every single headline right now. Especially as these same governments are like losing their shit um, over Syria. Uh, well, not say not well, not not only not saying a word, but they are arming. Like they, the reason Saudi Arabia can do this is because it's in partnership with uh, these governments that are arming them to the teeth. The, literally, the richest country in the region is decimating the poorest country in the region. That's what you have taking place. I mean, it's just it's completely like, and the fact that Yemen is like so little, there's so it's like not discussed. I mean, and we're, we're like American hands are all over it. And it receives such little attention. And the level of suffering there is 
unimaginable. So, Ben, if you could, uh, there was a significant development in the last couple of weeks politically, so to speak, uh, with um, multiple senators. Um, Bernie Sanders and Chris Murphy are, are high-profile sen- senators. Uh, Chris Murphy, actually, a Democrat being someone who has been very outspoken against what the Saudis are doing to Yemenis. In, uh, and so, uh, you know, just to read a quote here, thousands and thousands of innocent civilians inside Yemen today are dying and the United States is complicit. This horror is caused in part by our decision to facilitate a bombing campaign that is murdering children and to endorse a Saudi strategy inside Yemen that is deliberately using disease and starvation and the withdrawal of humanitarian support as a tactic. There is no legal authorization for the United States to be part of a war inside Yemen, and Congress cannot continue to be silent. Very plain and straightforward. But, uh, I I mean, just address the fact that there is this effort. And then also, I think what's kind of alarming is that there's no momentum behind it. There there doesn't seem to be um, any push by progressives or anyone who considers himself part of the left or even any sort of like anti-war mobilization to give support to this when we're actually seeing a, a, a potential coalition for fighting U.S. involvement in Yemen. Oh, this is huge. And uh, for, for those who don't know, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, Mike Lee, and Chris Murphy together co-sponsored a resolution they introduced uh, that would cite the War Powers Resolution, which is a 1970s-era uh, rule that allows the U.S. Congress to exercise oversight over wars waged by the executive branch in order to withdraw the U.S. forces, military forces that are operating inside Yemen. Um, what this would effectively mean is the end of the war. Uh, it has long been acknowledged, it is not controversial at all, to say that Saudi Arabia cannot wage the war in Yemen that has been waging for nearly three years without the support from the United States and also the United Kingdom. Uh, this is very clear that New York Times editorial board acknowledged it. Um, and if they were successful in this bill, it would it would mean that Saudi Arabia would probably overnight, like with Israelis with Israel's war in Gaza in in, uh, in 2014, overnight the war would probably end. So what we saw with the 51 day um, Operation Protective Edge in Gaza in the summer of 2014 is. Obama continued to support it, continued to support it. And then finally, on the 50th day, he tepidly criticized it and said Israel is going too far. And basically, overnight, the war ended. And we could see something similar happen in Yemen. But this would be even more monumental because it would be the first time in history that the Congress forced the executive branch to withdraw military forces from a conflict abroad. And actually, just to quickly clarify, it's not really fair to say that there isn't any support. Um, I'm, I'm seeing right now that uh, Code Code Pink, our revolution groups, move on. Um, these individual, in, sorry, indivisible organizations, these chapters that um, sprouted up in the last few years, um, as well as surprisingly, Freedom Works are actually opposed to uh, the continuation of the war. So, so go on. Oh, it's the Red Brown Coalition. Uh, uh, joke. Uh, uh, what's interesting about this is. It is bipartisan. And uh, uh, so we see prominent Democrats like Chris Murphy. We see the most prominent and only independent senator, Bernie Sanders. And then we also see Mike Lee. Mike Lee is a pretty conservative Republican. 
And uh, the fact that they're all unify unifying behind this, I think, is demonstrative of the fact that, one, there is a split within uh, within the U.S. government and within discussions of what it means to exercise U.S. power abroad over the role of Saudi Arabia. And uh, that's, a, that's a subject of a long discussion, but, but it's significant that uh, a conservative Republican senator from Utah is co-sponsoring a bill with uh, a self-described democratic socialist, Bernie Sanders. Um, it's also good because, you know, Bernie Sanders has a pretty mixed record on, on some of these issues. His foreign policy has often been pretty weak. He supported the bombing of Yugoslavia, supported it in, in, in uh, Libya. Um, but he's learned, and on this issue, he's taken a pretty admirable, admirable stance. Um, like you said, we've seen some support different progressive groups. In the Senate, unfortunately, there has not been much support yet. Um, in fact, the last check I saw only had six senators su supporting uh, the bill. Um, but, you know, it was just introduced, and it could actually go pretty far. And, and I think what's interesting about this contradiction is it's very different from Israel-Palestine, where with Israel-Palestine, there's basically just bipartisan support, uh, almost without condition, for uh, the U.S. support for Israel, U.S. arming of Israel, Israel's wars in Gaza, etc. On Yemen, we've it's been much more uh, of a contentious issue, and we have seen some splits. Um, in fact, I, I would even say that there are even some more splits on the Republican side. And this makes it a kind of tricky issue. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the Republicans are motivated just by Islamophobia, right? And uh, Saudi Arabia does not help by being governed by an extremist uh, form of Islamism known as Wahhabism. Um, but on the Democratic side, we have seen some splits. We've seen some admirable leadership from Chris Murphy on this issue. He's not great in some other issues. We've also seen Ro Khanna, who is really good on foreign policy. He's very anti-interventionist and anti-war. He is a, a new, young, uh, freshman congressman in California. He's also very progressive on economic issues. Um, we've seen you know, several other figures. Ted Lieu, who's also a congressman in California. Um, so we have seen, for the past few years, some congresspeople speak out uh, this is going to have to gain a lot more momentum if it's going to be successful, because um, right, right now there's just not enough support, support inside, inside the Senate. Senate. But, but the, the fact, fact that it's it's, it's an, an issue on the agenda is important, especially for pu pushing back against some of these neoliberal Democrats who kind of just uh, let foreign policy slide as an unimportant issue. The fact that people are making this one, and even some of these groups you mentioned, Indivisible, I mean, these are Democratic Party allied groups that uh, are not very progressive. But to me, this seems like such a no-brainer, um, and it's not nearly as controversial as something like Israel-Palestine, where, you know, certainly support for Saudi Arabia in the United States goes back to the 1930s, um, like Israel, um, but, but it's an issue that's much easier to swallow, and it's a much easier political pill uh, to sell to people. Um, so I think uh, we shouldn't be too optimistic because there has to be a lot of work that goes on inside the Senate. But uh, like you said, I mean, we do have reasons to be hopeful that some of these groups are joining with Code Pink and the anti-war groups. Uh, you know, frequently it's Code Pink and um, 
the Answer Coalition, and, and these are the kinds of groups that are the only sponsors. So the fact that we've seen mainstream support from centrist Democrat groups and even right-wing groups like FreedomWorks is, is impressive. And then, Ben, uh, there's also the fact that the Pentagon itself is trying to get this to not be brought up for debate. Um, I don't know how, how, how much you're aware of that, but perhaps you could speak to uh, the sort of like uh, Saudi Arabia's efforts in order to prevent politicians from moving in a direction in order to uh, basically lobby and, and ensure that this would continue. I mean, essentially what the Pentagon is arguing here, and, and you can decide to take these on if you want, but basically they sent a letter before the proposal was even filed uh, that the, that Bernie and uh, Mike Lee and Chris Murphy are backing and, and argued that U.S. support are, is not uh, part of hostilities because American forces are just uh, are not having exchanges of fire with the rebels. Uh, they're not commanding the coalition. Also suggested that it would impact the ability of the U.S. to go after uh, local branches of the Islamic State. So that's sort of where they've staked their ground. But of course, we could also see these as clever efforts to assist Saudi Arabia. Uh, that, that's, of course, nonsense. I mean, you're, you're right that it's, it's an effort to support Saudi Arabia. The argument they're making is complete nonsense. And not only is it nonsense from a simple factual perspective, but even the House has passed a bill acknowledging the, the key U.S. involvement in the hostilities in Yemen in November, the House representatives finally voted in support of a Yemen-related bill. It was watered down a bit, um, but it was sponsored by Rokana, who I mentioned. Um, and in in November, this this bill said very explicitly it acknowledged from from the U.S. government that the U.S. has played a key role in the hostilities in the war in Yemen, not just by supporting and arming Saudi Arabia. And to stress this point. Under Obama, the U.S. offered more than $115 billion of arms deals. Again, $115 billion of arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then, of course, under Trump, when he took a, a, his trip in uh, earlier last year to Saudi Arabia, he signed uh, a tentative agreement for an another $100 billion in arms sales to Saudi Arabia. So not only is that a key part of it, but uh, the U.S. military has personnel who were on the ground in Yemen. The U.S. military has personnel who were physically in the command and control center in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia who were helping the Saudi Air Force uh, wage this bombing campaign. And these American and, and also British military personnel have access to lists of targets. Um, and not only that, not only is the U.S. providing military intelligence to the Saudi military as they're bombing, uh, the U.S. is also engaging in in-air refueling. The U.S. has given uh, thousands of air sorties to refuel Saudi bombers, including one of the most egregious attacks in the war, which was in October of 2016, the Saudi Air Force bombed a funeral home in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, massacring uh, more than 150 civilians and then also injuring another 500 people. Uh, this was an, a, a horrific war crime. The United Nations identified it as such. And the airplane that carried out that attack the next day, they were being refueled by the U.S. military. So the, the argument that the Pentagon's making, that the U.S. is somehow not engaged in the hostilities, is totally false. 
even a House resolution passed in November acknowledges that. Um, that said, of course, why they're doing this is not just because of Saudi Arabia. I think that's part of it. But we need to understand the important uh, historic nature of this resolution that Bernie Sanders helped introduce. If this passes, again, it would be the first time that Congress withdrew U.S. military forces abroad and went above the executive branch and in, in doing so. So it would actually be a demonstration of the supposed checks and balances that we constantly hear our government has. Um, you know, I'm skeptical as to whether or not these checks and balance mechanisms actually work. But if if they can use the War Powers Resolution to do that, it would be absolutely historic. And of course, that terrifies the Pentagon. Yeah, that's actually a really important point that you're making here because we've had this authorized use of military force uh, that has been so elastic and stretched and it's almost unrecognizable anymore as far as what it originally was intended to allow as far as the advancement of empire is concerned uh, for the United States in, in you know the specific war in Iraq. But, uh, but yeah, the fact that Congress might present a threat to Pentagon war making is something to definitely head off. Of course. And, uh, you know, you, you said that very well. The only the other only other point I'd add is that we've also seen Saudi lobbying. And, you know, I'm I, I don't think it's insignificant at all. I'll clarify by saying that. But I'm one of the people I agree with Chomsky and others. I don't I think the um, influence of foreign lobbies is exaggerated, particularly the Israel lobby. I mean, it, it certainly has an influence. There's no question. But, you know, Iran has a, a small lobby in D.C. that does nothing. I mean, they can't get anything passed because Iran is an enemy of the U.S. Israel is an ally of the U.S. So it's not and Saudi Arabia is an ally of the U.S. So it's not like the Israel and Saudi lobbies are controlling Washington. I, I think that's a deeply problematic reactionary view. It can lead to anti-Semitism. I think, I think I agree with you. I think what these lobbies do is they control the is the PR impact that they have. But if anything, they're actually working in concert with the American foreign policy establishment. Yeah, and specifically, um, PR definitely is a huge part of it. And then also, on certain issues, they can maybe get their way, but on, on, but like mostly kind of minor issues. Well, like, like well, like with the Gulf things. states, for example, you have like the Qataris spending insane amount insane amount of money to lobby the U.S. government versus the UAE, and they have different interests in sort of competing regionally as like the leader of the Gulf. Um, but that doesn't really have an impact on American foreign policy more generally. Um, of, of course, but I'm saying I think, of, war and peace. of course, and I think there are just like some small issues that are mostly kind of symbolic, but politically significant that they might help, you know, maybe, uh, maybe be like a uh, key determining factor in. But, but the, the example for me that I think disproves this thesis that the lobby controls everything, um, which also, by the way, this is often a right wing talking point used that's, that's used to, uh, to justify and defend the U.S. military and the U.S. government. So you hear like, so like, for instance, right wing critics of Israel will be like many of some of whom are anti-Semitic. They'll be like, oh, uh, we, would, we would be doing so much better work if it weren't for the Israel lobby. It's, it's the Israel lobby that's holding us back. And it's like, nah, like they're part and parcel of the same system. But what, what I was going to say is the the um, uh, the counterexample is the Iran deal. So there was massive, massive lobbying going on in Washington, uh, billions of dollars spent by not just the Israel lobby, but by the Gulf lobby, by Saudi Arabia, to prevent the Iran deal from going through. And 
there's a lot to criticize Obama for, believe me. I mean, the war in Yemen began under him, and that alone is uh, a crime against humanity. But but Obama still got the Iran deal passed, and that was very impressive. And, and it demonstrates that if elements of the government are serious about implementing a, a policy that's independent of, that, that, that contradicts maybe the interests of Saudi Arabia and Israel, they're going to do it because the U.S. is the one calling the shots, not vice versa. Well, I, yeah, and I think that actually has more to do with the split inside the U.S. foreign policy establishment. Yeah. Um, there's like a right-wing element to it and a more liberal element to it. Like a more, like, it's like hawkish versus semi-hawkish, I guess you could say. Yeah, so like some of the power. Sheldon, Sheldon Adelson versus Heim Saban. Exactly. Like, that sort of um, thing, like, like the, the, you know, the, that that's, I think the more, the more like the split where the lobby plays a bigger role, like where lobbying plays a bigger role than with the actual overall like trajectory of foreign policy, which kind of just goes in the same direction no matter what. Of course. And so has for decades. So let me ask um, you. Well, really quickly, I was just going to add, the reason I brought this point up and like always I qualify it too long, but, uh, uh but, um. I also think the role of the Saudi lobby has played an influence in, in helping to push back against this. And I think, like I said, I, I just spoke of how I think the influence of the lobby is exaggerated. But when it comes to individual uh, Congress people, I think it, that's where it's more significant because, you know, lobbying groups have access to a lot of money, which can help uh, Congress people win elections. And, the, the, and more than 90 percent of Congress people who have more money in campaigns win the election. Um, so I think we have seen a, a major intensification of lobbying. Uh, Huffington Post published a pretty good article looking at how um, uh, Saudi Arabia is hiring more lobbyists and PR firms and uh, to work with senators to oppose this bill. All right. So as you were talking about with uh, the lobby, you uh, um, referenced the Israeli lobby, although maybe a little bit. Uh, obliquely, but uh, specifically, we had, uh, I guess, what we could call APAC week, uh, and that wrapped, and all of the uh, politicians who want to go uh, prostrate themselves before the lobby go, and um, some of them do it in off the record conversations. Like, I understand Nancy Pelosi was uh, did some off the record um, thing uh, where she had a, a briefing, but uh, I specifically wanted to. Get your reaction to uh, the, the the Democrats going before uh, Chuck Schumer's uh, speech. Uh, very much uh, infuriated a lot of people, <laughs> uh, Get and over it. and for for reasons that are pretty uh, probably fairly obvious. But it seemed like there was something very um, I don't know. Was there something about his speech that seemed to make people more irate than the, the typical uh, Israel or Zionist yes. type speak? Well, before I just that I'm like still stunned here because I mean, you write your speech before you give it. Like it's written, someone wrote the speech. Obviously he probably didn't write it himself. Someone, these speeches are written like you're reading them. It's not like these are just like off the cuff remarks. And in a prepared speech, Chuck Schumer blamed the Israel-Palestine conflict on Palestinians for not believing in the Torah. It was so crazy. Like, like it's like the most insane. I'm just like, who in, on earth sat down and wrote that and thought that was a good argument? Like, it was comical. It was so insane. I, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. It's just so. It's just so outrageous. Like you're right. It's just insane. Basically, Palestinians aren't Jews, and that's the problem. Actually, I was pretty honest. 
That is the, that is the problem from the Israeli perspective. I mean, <laughs> Palestinians aren't Jews. That's what Zionism is. It's an, yeah. it's an ethno-nationalist, exclusivist political movement that says if you aren't part of our ethnic group, then you can't be a citizen of our country. If Palestine, I mean, if the Palestinians would just be, Palestinians would just believe in the Jewish holy book, everything would be fine. But they don't. They refuse. They refuse. <laughs> it's just crazy. It's like, and so that's what I think what really um, like shocked people was just like maybe because of like the honesty of that probably well, and it I, shocked people. I, I think in terms of. To be honest, I mean, Schumer is an odious, contemptible neoliberal. I, I honestly don't think he believes that. I think that that was put in his speech as a uh, as bait for super right-wing religious Zionists. Um, and, of course, when you look at the support base politically for Israel, it's increasingly far-right, racist, openly racist, racist. Uh, and, 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 and very religious. religious. And, and this, this is true inside, inside Israel, Israel as well, well where... Uh, politically, the Israeli government has become not only for the right wing, but much more religious, much less secular. I mean, uh, this isn't in any way to defend the legacy of labor Zionism, but labor Zionism was was a secular political movement. Today, we have major orthodox parties that play a significant role in the Knesset, Naftali Bennett, others, even Ayelet Shaked. You know, she is pretty secular, but she's part of an orthodox party. So I think that, that the fact that that line was thrown in there was definitely bait. You know, the, it was a politically savvy move in terms of uh, Schumer, you know, s signaling to people who might dislike him because he's a Democrat um, and he's secular, but signaling to these far right orthodox elements that he's on board ultimately with this uh, this racist uh, ethno exclusivist agenda. Right. So what he said about the BDS movement was pretty much standard and likening it to anti-Semitism. And it's, you know, Hillary Clinton used that in her speech, um, essentially. And and so, uh, you know, and as this is moving on, I guess it's, it's important to mention that we have the this federal anti-BDS bill that's going through changes with Senator, uh, Democratic Senator Ben Cardin pushing for it. And uh, and. But uh, the other thing that, I, that is probably worth having you address is the potential here uh, because of uh, the, the, this brand of, of Democrats, these neoliberal Democrats who are Zionists, how they might find com common cause with neoconservatives because part of Schumer's speech as well as other speeches there was very focused on the so-called Iranian influence in Syria. And it seems like with Donald Trump in power, with people itching for showing some kind of uh, 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 committing some act of aggression against Iran, that that there's a potential here for common cause. No, of course. And I and I I think focusing on Iran is key to understanding the Trump administration's foreign policy, because it is true that it might not have a coherent policy, his administration. But if there is one unifying thread it is anti-Iran sentiment. And then maybe after that, anti-China sentiment. Um, but specifically, even if you looked at the people within his administration who are seen as the polar opposites, so McMaster, for instance, was often seen as butting heads with Flynn. Flynn is gone, but uh, they represented different poles. And then, of course, Bannon, Bannon and Flynn on one side, McMaster and, and the, the generals on the other side, right? Kelly um, with McMaster. But if you look at all of them, 
they may have some even strong disagreements in some political issues. Uh, what unifies them is they all agree that Iran is a major threat to the U.S. and is a key part of a key flank uh, plank of U.S. foreign policy. So I think that that's going to be one of the ways that the Trump administration kind of squares the circle and unifies, like you said, neoliberal Democrats and neoconservatives and his base, his alt-right base, too, because they all have different, slightly different views, especially on Russia, for instance. Like, it is true that some people in the alt-right are very sympathetic to and supportive of Russia. Um, that, don't, that doesn't mean, I think it's outrageous that, that this conspiracy that, like, Russia has compromised on Trump and is pulling the strings. No, of course not. It's ridiculous. But, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, that, that must Bannon, be why that Trump has those strength, those sanctions. No, no exactly. Or just sold. Yeah. I mean, it was mostly the Pentagon, but also just sold uh, weapons that even Obama wouldn't sell to the <laughs> uh, to Ukrainian moderate rebels, if you will. Well, it's Putin the, calling the shots. So it yeah, but, his... but but I think at the same time we can't ignore the fact that. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's for good reasons, but it is true that Trump would want to probably withdraw sanctions against Russia. And I think I, I don't support sanctions on any country. Like, like, of course, we should oppose sanctions because they hurt civilians. Um, yep. But uh, of course, I think he wants to do that for economic reasons, not necessarily for ideological reasons, because he has, you know, a history of business and, and specifically Tillerson has a history of, of um, fossil fuel business in Russia. But of course, uh, Democrats are not on board with that at all because Trump supports it. So now they support sanctions. And if you don't support sanctions, then you're supposedly a, a Kremlin shill. But again, I mean, so I'm, I'm underscoring a lot of these contradictions. But while there may be disagreements on Russia, I mean, while there may be disagreements on, um, you know, even Saudi Arabia, there is unified agreement within the establishment of both the Democratic and Republican parties that Iran represents a supposedly unique threat. And that's very clear from these speeches. And Schumer I want to actually, I want to, I want to throw out there that Iran does present a threat to the U.S. in terms of U.S. hegemony in the region. That's what the threat is. It's not specifically to like U.S. citizens. The threat Iran poses is to U.S. It's to U.S. control. They represent an independent state that a state that is independent of U.S. interests. That, that and, the U.S. does not control in the region, and they support movements. Uh, that that actually fight against um, U.S. imperialism in the region, well, and that's and the, why that, Iran that are, is that so are winning. evil. Yeah, exactly, and that are winning. And Iran is, I mean, uh, you know, Iran isn't this evil entity. Iran, Iran is in the region. Like they're not some outside power that's like imposing itself on the region. They are in the region. Iran is a huge reason why the region was able to uh, to fend off the ISIS assault that took over huge swaths of Iraq. And Syria was due to the vital help of Iran um, in those situations, as well as in Lebanon. Hezbollah is a Lebanese movement, but they received support. Like they're a partner of Iran, um, they are allied with Iran, and Iran. I mean, and, and, and Iran was vital to also protecting Lebanon because of their role in aiding Hezbollah. So, like Iran has actually played a very stabilizing role in the region, but all of those roles it's played, except for maybe in Iraq. Most of those roles have been in contradiction to U.S. interests in the region, and that's why Iran is this major problem, although it doesn't get you know framed that way. And what, what this highlights, I think, is when we're talking about politics, uh, especially with all these smears that, oh, you're a, a shill for the Kremlin, you're a shill for the Iranian regime, blah, blah, blah. 
we have to distinguish a country's foreign policy from its internal politics. Yeah. Uh, I mean, clearly Iran is not a model. Anyone, no one's looking at it. No one on the left is looking at Iran and saying, oh, you know, we should have this, <laughs> this like theocratic society. I mean, Iran, Iran has certainly elements of democracy. And Larry Wilkerson, who is an interesting, you know, kind of uh, anti-establishment Republican, he, he was formerly chief of staff for Colin Powell in the Bush administration. He helped oversee the invasion of Iraq and then has since regretted it. Uh, Larry Wilkerson said in, in an interview on The Real News that he he would argue that Iran is the most democratic country in the Middle East. Um, and that, again, you I'm could not, make that argument. You can. Yeah. And, I mean, that's sad as a state of the domestic politics. Well, of Middle course. East. But Iran does have elections. Like Iran yeah. does have more of a say. Like the people have more of a say in in how the country's governed than other countries in the in the region for sure. Yeah. Um, well, the point I was going to make really quickly is that. So this is, I mean, I just mentioned that point to show that Iran isn't some boogeyman. But at the same time, of course, Iran has a lot of problematic policies internally um, in terms of, you know, theocratic policies, women's equality. It, it has, it, in fact, under Rouhani, the irony is that uh, the contradiction is that Rouhani has been um, liberalizing social policies um, and, you know, help, you know, supporting like women's rights, et cetera. But at the same time, uh, he's been privatizing a lot of state assets. He's been trying to open Iranian um, industries to to foreign capital. Uh, so, but the point I'm making is that, you know, none of this is to defend Iran's internal politics. But when it comes to foreign policy, one one has to commend Iran. I mean, Iran has, frankly, saved the region and the world from ISIS. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think ISIS posed a global threat, but like it's not, it wasn't gonna. Well, no, it's ISIS is. A, but it I mean, saved well, the region ISIS, from ISIS. ISIS. Well, I actually I would argue that the introduction of ISIS into the region, which was largely a result of the U.S. and of the U.S. helping um, cause state collapse across Syria, which is how ISIS gained a foothold, uh, and gained territory and started kidnapping people, and then it got ransoms, and was able to like consolidate its forces in Syria before it took over. It invaded and took over large portions of Iraq. I would argue that all of that happening was due to U.S. imperial imperial the um, U.S.'s imperialism in the region, and as a result, caused that mass a massive refugee crisis that did destabilize the West. Like I think the refugee the refugee flow that like I mean it's historic that that was caused by the wars in Libya and Syria. And then the rise of ISIS and like the sort of fuel that gave to the far right did help destabilize the West. I mean, I think that's a huge reason why uh, figures like Donald Trump and his um, and you know people like him in Europe have have risen uh, largely on the back of fear mongering over refugees and ISIS. That's a great point. So and even it, even if ISIS didn't present a global threat in terms of like attacking the West, like obviously they're not going to be able to like militarily attack the West. I think their existence played a massive role. So anyways, that's my point, but well, that's continue. that's a key point. Well, I was just going to add one thing. That's a very, it's, that is the key point to understand the rise of a lot of these far-right movements, especially in Europe. Because, I mean, the U.S. has seen, you know, refugees and migrants come here, but especially understanding um, the meteoric rise of a lot of these fascistic far-right parties in Europe and how they've exploited this. And then also specifically how they've been able, this gets back to the whole red-brown nonsense, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of these mainstream center-left social democratic parties refuse to take positions against wars and intervention. And the far-right movements have said, not for good reasons, but they've said, we oppose these, for, these wars and interventions because they bring refugees and migrants here. 
So they've, they've mm-hmm. been able to own that narrative in a way that's been very destructive to the anti-war movement. But really quickly, all I was just going to add is that there's so I had to qualify it because there's just so much fear mongering about Iran. And there's also genuine issues inside the country. But when it comes to Iranian foreign policy, uh, they have really been the source of stability in the Middle East. And in fact, in foreign affairs recently, a former U.S. government official who's now a scholar wrote a pretty detailed article about how uh, Iran saved the region from ISIS and stabilized Mm -hmm. Syria, prevented state collapse in Syria. And uh, of course, the United States, their response is, we need to destroy the the last remaining country that can guarantee stability and prevent the spread of these Salafi extremist groups throughout, not just the region, but other parts of the world. And the Trump administration, again, they're going to exploit this this anti-Muslim bigotry, this anti-refugee bigotry, um, but they're again trying to actively destabilize the only sources of stability in the Middle East, which will f- give further rise to a lot of these very destructive forces. Obviously, the U.S. can still cause extreme degree of destruction. But the reason the U.S. was not successful ultimately, obviously a lot of Syria is destroyed, but ultimately the U.S. was not successful in the policy outcome that it wanted. Um, because they didn't win, they didn't, they weren't able to collapse the whole they state. Lost. A lot of that, a lot of that is not just because Iran came and helped its ally Syria, but because I mean the crucial element too was Russia, and I think after what happened in Libya, I don't think Russia will ever allow the U.S. to collapse another country in the region or China. Um, and I actually don't think the Europeans, not maybe not maybe 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 another time, but not now, especially because of the refugee flow. Um, and the and the problems that's caused in terms of like destabilizing the EU, um, I really don't think the Europeans uh, are interested in collapsing another Middle Eastern country because they're the ones who actually end up dealing with the refugee consequence, like you said, not the U.S. because it's Europe that's like next door, especially Germany. And that's yeah, like Germany. Uh, no, I mean, not just, I mean, like Italy, like you have all of these far right parties on the rise in, in, in these economically depressed countries. Um, and a lot of that is because like of the economics of it, sure. But because I mean, though, that flow of refugees of, of these people who are from a region of the world that's been demonized uh, for the past several years since uh, the war on terror began to an extreme degree. I mean, you have these massive flows of people walking to Europe those images were used on like, on like Breitbart in the UK, um, and other outfits like it, and by by far right political parties. I mean, those images were vital to the resurgence of support for those for those far right parties. So like, and, and that's that's ca- that's what's caused like I mean Brexit, for example, it's pissed off the EU and is like a destabilizing force for the EU. I mean, anti refugee sentiment played a huge role in passing that, you know. So. Um, I don't. I just don't think that the Europeans will be on board. It's. Not, I don't think they have a, really a say in allowing it or not. But yeah, they just won't be on board. For now. Yeah, you're right. Well, one more topic. So we'll see what happens. One more topic I want to get in here before we wrap. And thank you for uh, taking so much time with us, Ben. We really appreciate it. Of course, yeah, anytime. Thank you. Uh, I apologize for bloviating so much. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. We like the bloviating. I, I think we need the, more of it. Yeah, the bloviating is. Uh, <laughs> particularly great for our listeners who 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 like i think the bloviation <laughs> don't 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 encourage me <laughs> um 
Well, we just brought you on the show. That's, so that's, that's such a weird phrase. They like obligation. It sounds like almost like it sounds almost like dirty sexually. Yeah, it does. I don't even know where I'm going with that, but anyways. Moving so, on. So on on the topic We of all secretly like the bloviation. <laughs> it's our dirty little secret. Because right. like the name just, of a porn just, movie, the, just the bloviate, bloviate there a bit more. <laughs> Iranian bloviation. So if you can bloviate on uh, neoliberal Democrats uh, on this on the on this point, uh, we've we've had the um, very remarkable development with the South Koreans stepping forward with uh, the leader, uh, with South Korean President Moon Jae-in uh, stepping up and uh, facilitating peace talks between North Korea and the United States, um, and pushing some reg- some respect uh, toward denuclearization on on some level i mean it remains to be seen exactly what um he'll be able to get out of either side um i mean obviously the united states does not intend to budge as far as its um stance against north korea but we'll we'll see nonetheless we've had a breakthrough where these two powers are going to talk and the response from democrats is exemplified by the Center for American Progress's uh, director, f- fine director, um, who always wears her neoliberal politics and uh, right on her sleeve, uh, Nira Tandon, saying on Twitter, <laughs> so aren't we just giving in to the North Koreans? It doesn't seem like amazing negotiating to me. Uh, but I think that that's been the response by a lot of Democrats to what has happened, um, even though potentially we're moving in a direction toward peace. Well, I also know, I want to add, um, Ben, to, to whatever you're going to say, that Rachel Maddow is also very upset, um, along with Neera Tandon. So something's going on here. I mean, something I should be upset too, right? Oh, we should all be, because, you know, nuclear war is preferable as long as Trump is, is the one who's opposing it. Now, I mean, what this demonstrates is that the so-called resistance with, like, a capital R and a trademark sign and, like, a McDonald's logo and, like, a Nike <laughs> swish, like, the Mick resistance, if you will, uh, they, their modus operandi is oppose anything that Trump's doing. And I mean, Trump is horrible. He's an, I hate, hate him so much. Like it, it really is deep. He's a far right bigot. He's a billionaire. I mean, I usually call him the billionaire in chief, but that said, like sometimes a broken clock is, is right twice a day. And sometimes Trump has done policies. This is gonna be taken out of context, of course, but sometimes Trump has had policies <laughs> that have been good. And one of the there are very few policies you can literally count them on your fingers, and they're vastly outnumbered by the number of horrific policies that have been passed. But specifically, the the um, the ending he he ended TPP, he killed TPP, and there are a few other things. But this is one of the very few things that that I think maybe shouldn't be attributed to him, but that we should encourage. He is going to meet with Kim. That is a very significant step. And, you know, people are saying it might not even happen, but the fact that it's even being discussed is incredibly significant in terms of helping to to move toward rapprochement and re and I mean, we'll see what happens if the countries are reunited, but reunification might be off the, the board. But and some kind of rapprochement in the Korean Peninsula is very important because these countries have been in, at war or it's been a civil war, however you want to see it, since the 1950s, since the U.S., waged a genocidal war, killing at least 3 million Koreans 
uh, including two million civilians. Uh, the U.S. Air Force admitted that that they burnt every city to the ground, and a former uh, top U.S. military official said that the U.S. killed 20% of the Korean population, mostly the North Korean population in the war. Um, so the fact that we are going to have a potential meeting between the head of state, the commander-in-chief of the United States, and the DPRK, North Korea, that is incredibly significant. Now, that said, it's, it, we can, of course, you know, make fun of absurd Democrats for opposing this policy, and, and it just shows how they don't care about peace. All they care about is getting cheap political points and demonizing the Republicans, which is easy to and do. Maybe, and maybe causing, like, a nuclear war. I mean, just, I'm just <laughs> well, throwing that out there. They, don't, they, they seem not to mind if that happens. Yeah, I mean, exactly. The same thing with Russia. Them. Like, same thing with Russia. I mean, like, they're pushing for war, et cetera, there, because Trump is a little soft on Russia because he has economic ties, whatever. Um, but that said, uh, I don't think we should, even though I just made that long statement, which I think is important to keep in mind, I also think we should qualify it by understanding that I don't think Trump is responsible for this. And some of his supporters are saying, oh, this is like this elaborate mastermind conspiracy he orchestrated. And it's like, <laughs> no, um, I think his policy completely backfired. And now we're ending in the situation and we should credit um, South Korea specifically. And yeah. specifically yeah. we should credit yeah. South Korean people because, because what's, what's often, often left out of these discussions is that from 2016 to 2017, there was a massive protest movement in South Korea that ultimately ousted the right-wing president and led to elections in which, for the first time in decades, a left-leaning—he's not very—he's not very left—he's um, not very left-wing—but a left-leaning liberal president was elected, Moon, and he is the one who was open to political negotiations, whereas the previous right-wing governments in South Korea. And South Korea was a dictatorship until uh, just recently, which is often forgotten intentionally. But he was one of the first presidents who was open to having dis diplomacy and discussions with the North. And in response to that, the United States under Trump really ramped up its aggression, threatening nuclear genocide. Um, and that, I think, actually backfired. I don't think this was Trump's intention. He was trying to get South Korea to move away from from the North. But in fact, what it did was encourage further negotiations between the South and the North. And we, this, the apotheosis of this, the key point was the Winter Olympics, where you see Mike Pence is like a child trying to derail any attempt at uh, diplomacy and negotiations between the North and the South to such a degree that, that Mike Pence was invited to a dinner that, that would feature South Korea, the, the heads of state of, or significant politicians from um, South Korea, Japan, and and uh, I believe China, and then also North Korea. And Mike Pence refused to go to the meeting specifically because North Korea was invited. So, so this, this policy, policy is not Trump's, Trump's you know, mastermind strategy. Well, I, I want to make sure that we get this in, that Mike Pence would not stand and applaud the Korean athletes that were marching under one banner into the stadium because he thought that was some kind of a ruse to get people distracted by what North Korea has, has done to its people. No, of course. So again, what this demonstrates is that Trump supporters are trying to give him credit for something he really has little to do with. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we should oppose what's happening. We should encourage diplomacy and, and encourage anything that 
can prevent us from having a war, which would, would of course be a nuclear war. And what this has ultimately fallen in Trump's lap. His strategy completely backfired. It, his strategy forced the South, South Korea, even closer to the North. Now they're having negotiations, and now he might even that U.S. president might even meet with Kim. Uh, of course, that's not Trump's responsibility, but it's something we should welcome. And the Democrats who are now hand-wringing and condemning Trump for this, what, what, is, what is their alternative? Do they want war? Apparently, if they could, again, score political points. And that's the thing I've come to realize. The Democrats do want war. I mean, they're they are a war party just as much as the Republicans are at this point. And... Um, and it, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can't I don't know what other conclusion to make by the behavior, because even when Trump does become does get pro-war, they support it. That's actually the one thing they continue to support is giving Trump surveillance powers and war powers and applauding him when he bombs things like yeah, true. <laughs> that's that's like the one thing because like we were talking earlier about how like Democrats oppose everything Trump and, and, and until like. Uh, even if it's like towards, uh, even if it might be in favor of peace, but it's actually the fact that the Democrats oppose everything, um, everything Trump except for his his pro-war stance. <laughs> That's actually something they continue to support. Well, they for just the most part. straying from the script of American empire, and and so they they're they're yeah. fo they're following it along, and they they have their vision of what he's supposed to do next, and when he doesn't do it, then they want to get him back on script. Yeah. Basically, um, on that note, I think we've been going for a long time. I'm, I love having you on the on the talk, Ben. Um, oh, I always, always really enjoy it. Illuminating. I always learn something. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and at some point, we should like have some sort of joint crossover episode with your show. People also should definitely be listening to Moderate Rebels if you aren't already, which is Max Blumenthal and Ben's. Uh, podcast uh, that's really great as well um, but yeah thank you so much Ben <laughs> of course I would love to do a, a joint episode, episode with the four of us, us. that'd be incredible uh, uh, thanks for having me sorry again uh, for speaking <laughs> way too much but uh, it's always good to talk about these issues and unfortunately in even in progressive media there aren't many outlets to discuss a lot of this stuff. So your podcast is really important. Thanks for both Yes. Yeah, no, thank you. I agree with you completely. Like, uh, platforms like this are really important. So thanks for all those who support the show. Uh, and we'll be back next week.